out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Gordon King, guitarist with the band World of Twist. But to make it even more exciting, Gordon King has just published a book, written and published a book, titled When Does the Mind Bending Start? The Life and Times of World of Twist. This has come out on 9-8 Books, who seem to be bringing out so many good books at the moment. It is a brilliant read, so uh, do check it out. I'm not just saying that, but I am just saying it. But um, yeah, if you're a bit nerdy and you like indie pop and rock and pop and all that kind of stuff, it's brilliant. Um, There's lots of detail, lots of information, and you'll love it. So there you go, that's a huge recommendation. But anyway, look, this is the interview with Gordon, where we find out more about life, love, poetry, and everything else. And also, the early formative years. Gordon, tell us more, tell us now. Well, I was born in 61, so you mean we saw when you first kind of became aware of music? Yes, and you suddenly had that kind of moment that made yeah, you think, blimey, that just is, is kind of amazing. It's, it's really uncool, but for, for me, it was the Seekers. Right. Who were this kind of like kind of Australian sort of folk band. <laughs> a bit of a hit over it. They were very popular. And they had My God, theme. they're very popular. And they, they did the theme to a film called Georgie Girl over here. Yes. That was definitely the first for me. I, I, I remember absolutely loving that. But the Beatles probably was, was the other thing. I mean, yes. Just, it was just everywhere. Well, I was a bit confused with the Seekers because suddenly there was the new Seekers and I couldn't work out, I was only probably eight at the time, whether it was the same band, but it wasn't, it was a totally different band. And But, you know, again, I love those songs like, you know, I Want to Teach the World to Sing and Beg, Still and Borrow. And also one of the most amazing songs I remember was Scylla Black's Step Inside Love, which which I still think was an awesome song, which was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, or one of them. So, um, and she had the Scylla show and they just remembered this kind of dramaticness and when I listened to it a few years ago I thought god that's such a great song I can see you know you can see early you know the Pixies and Nirvana I'm not sure if Kurt Cobain was a fan but there was that, that kind of quiet quiet loud wasn't there yeah so I mean it was all stuff like that Legend of Xanadu, Dave Dees at Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch, uh, Love Affair, Everlasting Love you know they, they, they just had a massive impact on me yes uh, the foundations. So I, mean, I was a you know real sixties kid. I, I love my pop music. So um, even though I mean I prefer the seventies. The seventies is the decade, if you like. Yes. And did you come from a, mu- a musical family at all? Not really. No. 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 Not not at all. Not at all. Uh, all well, my parents just like classical music. Um, that's all all we had in the house really. A bit you know a bit of West Side Story. Um, there might have been the odd Beatles LP. Yes, herbal for dinner parties and stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> so yeah, cool. it wasn't really. You know, we didn't get much pop in our house. No, much. well, I guess with a lot of people with from a working class background, it was just focused on sort of trying to make ends meet and not living on any credit at all, which seemed to be the sort of the way that people were in those days. Were you bought? Was it Stockport, Manchester, that you grew up in? I grew up in Stockport, yeah. I mean, I was born in the south. I was born in Tunbridge Wells, but, um, yeah, we moved up to, um, we moved up north when I was quite young, like four. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of more Stockport than I am Tunbridge Wells, I guess. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then you've got a few more years on me, so I miss punk completely. But you, was punk kind of a big moment in your life? Yeah, it was a big moment, but not because, I mean, I wasn't, it kind of, I, I wasn't waiting for it. You know, you have a lot of people around that time sort of thing saying it was, you know, the whole musical landscape was really boring and they were just kind of couldn't wait for something like punk to come along. But I didn't kind of, it did come along and eventually got into it. But I, I was a massive progressive rock fan and stuff like that. So I had all my music. You know, it was all taken care of. It, it's just very quickly it became a, a bit uncool what I was listening to. Yes, well, it's interesting because I I had an older brother who was seven years older and he was really into prog rock. It was, you know, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Buckley, James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which was quite extraordinary. And um, 
the B and he did have Sergeant Pepper, which was and Yellow Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which at the time I just you know used to sneak into his room, listen to those records. I didn't. There was no cultural context that these were going to be classic albums. I was just fascinated with, you know, Good Morning by the Beatles. I thought was just one of the greatest songs of all time. So, um, but yeah, it's prog rock. You know, King yeah. Arthur. So I, I was, you know, del- I was quite happy with the status quo. So when Punk came along, it wasn't sort of I didn't embrace it. Um, no, but it was much more fun. You know what I mean? You could go. It, it was it was just a better lifestyle, I guess. And I eventually got into the music through the bands that actually sounded more like pro- progressive rock to me, which were yes. like Ultravox, a magazine, sort of bands that had kind of keyboards in them. So, yes. So I, I kind of got in that way, but but I, I, I it was great. I enjoyed it, and then of course you know Joy Division and the Human League and stuff like that. You know became. You know, I, I became sort of obsessive about those two bands in particular. Yeah, but before then, what was the, so you in the book? You mentioned Hawkwind as this kind of moment. Was this your yeah. first gig as well? It wasn't my first gig. Slade was my first gig. But, um, my God, you've got such street cred, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think Stuart Stuart Lee's was the Wombles. You know, was it? Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's better than the Wombles, yeah. Well, Slade and Status Quo were supporting them. Well, geez, so, I yeah. mean, Status Quo in our area, this is the East Anglia. I mean, the Quo were just, you know, you just wouldn't say anything against the Quo without getting beaten up. They were just absolutely the gods of music. I just remember them being way too loud. I had to, I had to go out. It was, it was absolutely splitting. Um, I mean, I was only about 11, so I wasn't I kind of, you know, I was, I was a youngster, but I think Holcomb is the first gig I went to kind of unchaperoned. I didn't go with my uncle or... Right. You know, so I, it's the first time I went with some friends. And um, I think Hawkwind at the time were, you know, they were really like a sort of tr- global, sort of, not global, no, so sort of travelling... Freak hippie, show. Uh, freak show, exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it, you know, you kind of read about them before you went. And the thing is, in those days, you couldn't, you know, there was no YouTube or anything. And no. Bands like Hawkwind didn't get on top of the pops. Um, I mean, they, they got in the charts with Silver Machine, but you, you didn't really know what they looked like. You didn't know what to expect. No. So you kind of read these reviews and the fact they had a, you know, a dancer that took all the clothes off and it was like kind of, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be quite strange. Yes. Uh, it was. It was. It was absolutely brilliant. So... And yeah. was and Lemmy was on bass at this stage. Yeah, yeah, Lemmy Lemmy was in the band. Um, yeah, it was a full sort of you know eight piece eight piece Hawkwind, you know. Yes, I mean I would imagine that was even more ear shattering than Slade um, Status Quo, or was that quite okay? I don't remember it being that loud, but it was. But there was a lot going on. There was so much to look at. You know, it was just you know complete. So I nearly swore that um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a brainstorm. Yes, Nick, one of their titles. I know, and I suppose had they written or gone accumulator by then, or gone accumulator, of course. Yeah. Yes, God. I mean, we had to suddenly embrace <laughs> orgon energy decades later, didn't we? Or try to pretend we knew something about it. So then, how did you? Did you? When did you start thinking? Right, music is going to be my thing because I did an interview with dear old Lawrence from Felt and go-kart yeah. Mozart and he said music that was it there was no there was nothing else in his life he was determined to do it did you have a a kind of a moment like that as well no kind of not really because the kind of bands I, I, I was really into at the beginning was like you know yes Genesis that that crew I mean they never inspired you to make music because you just kind of thought there's no way you're ever going to get to that level Yes, we kind of uninspired you. <laughs> it was com- it was very complicated, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So just the record uh, sleeves by Roger Dean was enough. So, so when you know when punk came along, and um, you know you had kind of particularly bands like Joy Division, who you know weren't were great musicians, but just wrote these incredible songs, and it made you th- it made you think, well, you actually. You don't have to be a great musician to write amazing music. Yes, Whereas I, th- I think punk was slightly different because, I mean, apart from the the front runners, I would say most of the music didn't have much merit. I mean, the Pistols obviously did, and the Buzzcocks did, but the, but as as you kind of went a few layers down, the music was 
a bit crap, to be honest. Oh, God, it's appalling. If you ever watch Top of the Pops doing their, you know, what's they Oh, on BBC Four, you know, they do a punk one, don't they, Top of the... You right. know, the punk at the BBC, and it's excruciating. It's just kind of men who obviously were in, you know, ordinary rock bands suddenly like, in right. these punk bands with these kind of dreadful haircuts. Yeah. Trying behind. to de- deconstruct everything they knew. And oh, God, and, yeah. you know, and, and listening to If the Kids Are United... To the end is just like one of the most painful experiences of my life. It is just appalling. But but I think the whole post punk thing was, which is what a lot of you know young young people who've been inspired by you know the, the freedom that punk gave you, actually started being really creative and creating this amazing music. And uh, so I think what came out you know between sort of nineteen seventy eight and nineteen eighty two maybe yes you know was incredible really. And I can't remember, sort of, because I've been looking at the book. When was your first music festival? Was that Reading, or did you go to a small one before then? Oh, yeah, I kind of went to, uh, yeah, Reading was the first. Yeah, Reading in 1978, which was brilliant, because that was the year um, the punks sort of broke Reading. And um, and there was lots of of fighting between Sham 69 fans and, uh, and, you know, sort of status quo fans. Yeah, it was... was, uh, a bit chaotic yes absolutely because you also ultravox is one of your go-to bands at this stage yeah, yeah i was i was mad on them um yeah I've got, i haven't got much to say about them apart from i was <laughs> but um, they, were, they were good I, and I, I still i still think some of their stuff stands up not all of it but um yeah, yeah. Their, their second album's really good yeah, absolutely. So then, did you leave school at 16 or did you decide? Because I can't, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't have much option. <laughs> I, I mean, I got, I got into art college, you know, on a, you know, by default, really. I mean, I think I think it's just they didn't have enough numbers for the course. But um, So I, I went to art college for a bit, but, uh, but then I, I was there for about three months and then had a bit of a kind of uh, illness mental illness and then sort of because what happened my parents all they moved away from Manchester and they went down south but um I didn't really want to go with them so I, I tried to make it work staying in Manchester but um it didn't the wheels fell off yes god I know I, I sort of seem to remember bits in the book about this this kind of um yes it's it's hard the, the family home sort of uh disintegrates because sort of you know 79 Thatcher gets in we have the the Faulkner War the miners strike Greenham Common so when yeah. did you start thinking right I need a I need a way out of this kind of unemployed sort of being just left onto the sort of coal heap if there was such a coal heap still about it's funny when I think about that years I, I don't really think about the unemployment and, and, and the what unemployment was rife but I'm guessing it just wasn't as expensive to live in those days I mean you could you could kind of exist without a job and I don't think you can now um, I mean maybe I'm wrong but what, what I do remember is the uh, it was the kind of world climate it was a, it was really scary everyone was you know expecting you know russia and america to start bombing each other at, yes you know it, it was it was kind of a really scary time um i remember pete wiley put a record out called seven minutes to midnight for this band war heat and uh, nobody really knew what knew about the doomsday clock at the time um and you know this, it was so this it was this idea that you you had a clock and however close it is to midnight is however however you know however close we are to kind of nuclear armageddon right the clock then was set at seven i think it's set at about one minute to midnight now so <laughs> things haven't got any better but um yeah I, that, that that's that seems to be what you know i mean i i was you know not in particularly into politics so i didn't really i kind of wasn't aware thatcher had come to power you know I don't think kids that age should be aware of politics. 18, you know. It's tricky. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. I think you're right about the, I think it was cheap to live. And I also, I think one's standards or one's expectations were so low that yeah. getting £35 on the dole, yeah. you know, was like, oh, that's amazing. I've done that. And I've got my housing benefit and I've got my jobs, you know, I've got the <laughs> yeah. council tax paid. I mean, 35 yeah. quid was fine. It didn't seem yeah. a big, 
issue you know I mean we all looked like tramps and ate sort of pretty sort of basic food but it was kind of all right but the other important thing was there were so many other people doing it it didn't have a stigma to it so I think that kind of also helped and I think that's why on a slightly simplistic level there were so many indie bands that started because there was also the job seekers alliance or enterprise alliance schemes that you could say oh I've got a thousand pound on an account and they go oh you can have a year being a self-employed oh musician that's great there you go so you know I I think it's pretty wrong for musicians these days I mean I've got a band and we all work but we you know when you want to rehearse it's like 40 quid for the night (laughs) yes 10 quid an hour and it you know when we we had a band in Northampton you know it would have been 40 quid would have kept you in rehearsal space for you know six months (laughs) so you know you'd have been been taking sleeping bags wouldn't you really exactly yeah <laughs> so when you know because you talk about post-punk but for me the the kind of the major mo- musical moment was 83 it was the smiths they suddenly appeared on the on the scene what was it like for you sort of as a as a sort of aspiring sort of musician in a band sort of that that kind of slight slip slip you know s- slip slide into a slightly different musical genre um I don't, I don't know, but the Smiths probably didn't have quite the same impact on me as you maybe, but um, uh, I was a bit kind of later. We'd moved to Sheffield by then, and um, we, 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 I lived in Northampton for a couple of years, and then we moved to Sheffield, and that was, um, Sheffield had its own kind of thing, really. You know, they did produce the Human League and... Cabaret Voltaire. And, Cabaret Voltaire and ABC were just about to happen. Oh, and Paul, my God. I know, because yeah. Cherry Red Records just brought out that full CD box set of the late 70s, early 80s of she- the Sheffield scene. So it did yeah. it did suddenly have a pulse, didn't it? Yeah. And, and, and I think Sheffield, for me, sort of changed everything because Sheffield was a very political kind of place. Do you know what I mean? You know, the um, Ian McGregor was sort of busy sort of closing down the steelworks everywhere, which was what Sheffield was built on. And then, you know, the, the, mine, you know, the minor strikes were just around the corner. Um, and you had this, this town with, with such a vibrant music scene where everyone just seemed to be in bands. And um, that, that, was, that was a real eye-opener. And that, that's when we, we really started kind of, we got our band together then. Yes. And when did you get a guitar? Nineteen eighty-three. Right. Were yeah. you on a Were you on a mission at this stage? You were going to be determined. Yeah, we 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 definitely decided we'd we'd get a band together. But um, it, it's funny you should mention Paul because I mean we will we often get will the twist often get compared to Paul. Um, I, I never really saw much of connection musically. No, God, I don't. But, but we were um, we were kind of a bit. Well, the twist and Paul, because Paul was, were, uh, I think they were probably going a bit before us, but we were regarded as a bit, you know, sort of novel, novelty acts in Sheffield. You know, we were joke bands, if you like, because um, we, we weren't doing anything that was very Sheffield-like. Sheffield was all sort of industrial funk, and uh, a lot of bands were trying to emulate Cab- Cabaret Voltaire. Yes. So we 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 kind of gone. We were sort of trying to do the whole sixties bit, you know. And uh, but you had was it Colin Gregory from One Thousand Violins? He was a bit more rock pop, you know. I don't I don't not not heard of him. The old, the, the One Thousand Violins. I think they went from Sheffield down to London and were on the Dan Tracy label Wham for a little bit. So um, what Dan Tracy of the television yes so there was this band from Sheffield who I think they relocated and then became the Dillons do you remember the Dillons in the early yeah yeah. so the 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 nucleus of the Dillons was this guy from 1000 violins from Sheffield and um so yes they went down were on the the Wham label which uh, Dan started but then obviously George Michael was like and Simon Napier Bell they you know so they said look stop using the Wham name even though I think he had it before and they had an extra A in it so anyway god um so I so you have a bit more in common with bands like the Dillons didn't you yeah we would we were kind of sort of quite retrogressive really you know um what's what's the word you 
Sorry, it was more like I guess there was a scene in the early 80s, which was was it New Paisley or um, you know, these bands like Dream Syndicate, and then eventually bands like Green on Red started coming out, and so they sort of embraced the birds and a slight psychedelia, didn't they? Yeah, I, I suppose we, we weren't really trying to uh, have a sort of 60s revival, it, it, the, the idea was to sort of put a lot of kind of influences together that really clashed, but uh, but I think the 60s influences were stronger than anything else yes. so right, right from the start we, we we wanted to have a kind of heavy element to it so we, we wanted it to jar we didn't want it to be a kind of you, you know a comfortable kind of 60s thing yes i mean it did sort of come together re- really well because the album that you released in the early 90s sounds amazing still and there's a track on it called is it lights which i just think is one of the it's kind of pop perfection the lights that's the one that's the one that i keep going back to can you remember how that song came together not really to be honest no. <laughs> <laughs> um no um uh it just has some vibe to it doesn't it it just i don't know the album has a whole amazing vibe to it and i just thought wow this is this song is just amazing you know you, you know when you hear an album and one song just seems to stick out so much yeah I, I, I like that song, but um, I've no idea how it came <laughs> together to be very unhelpful. Well, that's all right. I mean, as, as I say, did you sort of at that point, because it's a bit of a theory, but, you know, there's this sort of a five-year period, you know, where there's a sort of a wave of 16, 18-year-olds come along, then the next wave, and they need their new musical scene. And and there was a five-year period from sort of 83 to 87, the years of the Smiths, where it was indie pop, and then that kind of fades, and then ecstasy comes along. And then you have all this dance scene with the Primal Scream and Soup Dragons and uh, Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. Did you sort of, you were in that point where you had just started during that mid 80s, where things had started changing quite a lot. Did you start to pick up on that? Um, I, I don't think we did, because when we left Sheffield and moved back to Manchester, we, we all kind of left a bit with our tails between our legs. You know, the band had kind of gone as far as we thought it could go because we were like a six piece in those days. Um, I mean, three of the members that went on to form what became World of Twist Mark II and the, the band that had some success, they were all in the first lineup. Um, but we'd, we'd kind of, you know, like I said, we were regarded as a bit of a joke and and we'd, we'd kind of done as many gigs as we're ever going to go do, you know, and, and, and you know, we. I think we we knew we knew it was over. So the three of us—that was Tony, the singer, um, Andy, who played bass, and myself—we moved back to Manchester. And I mean, we didn't immediately think we we'd carry on. And uh, and the Manchester we got back to was it probably was very Smiths influenced. You know, there were bands like the Bodines. Um, and a lot of other bands <laughs> quite like the Smiths, but but it was it was sort of probably C eighty six, you know, very sort of jangly guitars influence, yes. you know, and so we, I mean, to start with, we we weren't expecting to carry on with the with the music. We I don't think we kind of planned to, uh, and that happened sort of very gradually, and then the singer Tony kind of his dad died and he got left left quite a lot of money, so he invested it in sort of a lot of recording equipment. And so we got, we got into the kind of digital music making thing quite early and sort of, that really wasn't what Manchester, Manchester was about. Yes. It did become, it did sort of turn into that with the sort of dance scene. You I know, guess you had a guy called Gerald that came out into yeah, yeah. Voodoo Ray, which we loved. Yeah, you know, so that, but by then there were people making music on computers, but, um, I can't remember anyone who was doing it while we were doing it, but still trying to make pop music, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Yes. We were, do... we, were never, we, we were never trying to make dance music, you know. Because you do an amazing version of um, She's a Rainbow, the Ronan Stones classic. Were, there, were those kind of moments quite pivotal in the band? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, She's a Rainbow is a funny one because at the time, it, well, it came from an album called it's his satanic majesty's request or there yes yeah this which where, was they, like, where they dressed up in yeah well, it's, it's them trying to basically copy sergeant pepper wasn't it yeah. 
Uh, and but it was the least regarded Stones album of of the sixties. I mean, it was. You know, a lot of people regard it as a bit of an embarrassment. So you know, to give you an idea where our heads were at, that was the only Stones album we liked. Um, so you know, we, it, she's a rainbow wasn't an obvious song, but now it's used in TV commercials. The Stones version, not ours. Yes. You know, you kind of know of it now, but at the time, it was quite obscure as a Stones record. I yes. Think. Well, I think my first compilation or Stones was Through the Past Darkly or something like that, yeah, which had that, that, that version and or that had that kind of yeah. um, track on it. And it just always seems so exciting when you hear the stereo of the footsteps going from one speaker to the other, which was like when you're young, you think, God, that's so that's so clever. I must copy that. So how did the band start evolving from Mark One? It sounds like Spinal Tap, doesn't it? To your Mark Two. Did there was there a bit more of a seriousness during the 90s when you started getting a bit more, yeah, well, the late 80s when you started getting a bit more attention? Yeah, definitely, because uh, the Mark the Mark One uh, version. I mean, like I said, it, it, it was it was just a bit daft, really. You know, I mean, kind of knew we probably would never get an audience, and even though we sort of treated it seriously, it was kind of a bit. You know, it, it just jarred with everything. It jarred with everything in Sheffield. Uh, there was no obvious audience out there for us. Um, yes. And, and, what, and I was going to say, you also had, was it Martin Hannett did a production for you as well, a B-side? Yeah, the, well, he did She's a Rainbow, that, but that was that was later. That was when the, you know, when the the, 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 the kind of Mark II version sort of took off. Right. Yes. But when we got back to Manchester and we started going again, it, it did get very serious pretty quickly, really. Um, I think it was because, you know, we realised that, you know, in Tony Ogden, we, we had a complete genius in, in the band. And, and that maybe wasn't so obvious when we were in Manchester, in Sheffield, sorry. Yeah. I mean, so Tony was the drummer in Sheffield and he, he was just this, you know, crazy, oddball fellow. But, you know, he, 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 we, know, we didn't know he could write music or anything like that. I mean, we knew he was a good musician. He could play guitar and keyboards and stuff. But um, so what really happened is at the, towards the end of Sheffield is me and Tony started just rehearsing on our own and just writing a lot of music together. So it kind of made sense that we would carry on in Manchester. But I don't think any of us realised just how talented Tony was. Yes. As, as the writer. And, and I think as soon as we started hearing the kind of music he was producing, then suddenly we kind of thought, wow, there's something in this and 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 as as soon as people heard it you know they were just straight away predicting massive things for us yes did it um was there a bit of a a hunting game from the record labels to sort of sign sign you up was i'm no, amazed there wasn't, there wasn't i don't know if it's like everyone else because there was a there was a massive buzz about us but actually in terms of solid uh, interest we only had a company called circa who who were who came after us, but fortunately they were quite an established company at that time, and they had they had probably like the coolest roster of major label artists at the time. Like uh, Massive Attack were on their label, yes, um, Nana Cherry, you know. So they they'd had a lot of sort of quite big. Um, artists you know they, they were cool they were a cool label they were very yes they were very cool and how were you coping with this sort of the strain of being a musician and being in a band were the band sort of holding it together or was kind of drugs starting to play a part in this interesting world uh no it was it was, it was all right for me I, 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 I mean you know drugs were never a big thing for me personally and, and probably not for the I mean it was it was only really Tony it was uh like his drugs to the extent, you know, maybe Adj when he joined, you know, he, he, I mean, we weren't a crazy drugs band, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. was the intensity at that point though, with the, with the sort of the band and then the album and then the pressures of touring, did that start to sort of have a massive effect on what was going to happen next? Um, no, I think, I think that, I mean, we had sort of 18 months, you know, from, from, from starting where we, we kind of did our first gig through to where we kind of pro probably, you know, sort of, we didn't split, but, you know, where, where the whole thing started to come apart. And during that period, I think maybe everything happened a bit too fast for us. Um, 
I know it was it wasn't easy because we were on a major label and being on a major label compared to an indie label is that there's probably not that same pressure to have a hit record. Um, yeah. You know, that they invest more in you. They throw more money at you, but they want a quick return. Yes. And um, so we got on that treadmill fairly quickly where we, re- we, we realised that the first single was expected to be a minor hit and then the next single was expected to be a bigger hit. And, you know, and, and if it actually started going in the other direction, then, you know, the, the label started thinking, OK, we've back to loser here, you know. God, that's but, whereas I, I think with, you know, an indie label, you maybe get slightly, more, you know, slightly more time to develop. Yeah, because often the first album is, I know sometimes it can have the best work, but in a lot of cases, I mean, God, you look at David Bowie's 60s work and, you know, even his very early 70s, his first album with Space Oddity, it's such an odd album that just is appalling, really, and what he was doing in the 60s is more strange because you're thinking you've got all these other albums coming out and he was kind of you know you think god you know it was just weird that he had that kind of yes i'm still going to keep doing this i'm amazed that you didn't get that push to say right okay that's fine yeah that's the first album let's let's work on the second one i, I think we might have done but i thought i think the record company got got wind that things weren't great at base camp so i think that's why they kind of pulled the plug i mean they, they probably would have kept us on because we we were doing sort of sellout shows you know certainly in manchester and london you know I mean, we were getting fairly good crowds you know elsewhere yes um, so there was certainly an interest there was an audience but um yeah i mean it just I, it, it just came apart because um in a way sort of me and the singer and we, we were the principal songwriters you know, we just weren't kind of getting on in a way. It's fairly simple. Really. <laughs> did it? Did you have a moment where you had to sit down, or did you just stop? Kind of the band, it just fizzled out. Yeah, it was fairly organic the way it just fizzled. Out. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I think it just um, Tony Ogden, the singer. I think it, you know, I think the pressure got to him a great deal. You know, and. Uh, I think the, the the problem was, is, you know, as far as everyone was concerned, he was the band, you know. Um, yes. Uh, and and so we could we could kind of shrink into the background behind him, but you know, as soon as the sort of bad reviews started coming through, I mean, there wasn't loads. We we were really well supported at first, but you know, by the time we'd kind of re-released "She's a Rainbow" for the second time, then you know, we kind of were starting to stink a bit, you know, in the <laughs> yeah. yeah, God, if only, I mean, you would have been ideal for Britpop, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I think I think if, if we'd have just hung about a bit, maybe not gone so early. Yes. But, you know, we, we, were, we weren't young, so that, that, I mean, that's the other thing, you know, we were, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of a bit now or never because we were all nearly 30 and, um, you know, not yet. And at this stage, after people, because five years is often the sort of time for a lot of bands that I seem to interview, you know, they get together, 12-month honeymoon period, you know, the John Peel session, which is always a bit of a blessing, the few singles for albums to tour, then you know, hopefully the second album. But then after that, everyone's just like, God, I've had enough, we've made no money, and it's and it's all ended in tears. But you then sort of put together another band for the 90s, which is just extraordinary. Did you oh, well, sort of... Earl Brutus, yeah. I mean, that was um, that wasn't me because I, I was still in Manchester then, and um, so that that was Nick, who was Nick Sanderson, who was in um, he was in World of Twist, you know, when we sort of yes, thought. he was he was a drummer, uh, and Jim Fry, um, who was the original singer in World of Twist. So they'd moved to London a long time before, and they put this thing together with a guy called Rob March, who was in the band called the Joe Boxers. Yes, who have just reformed for some live dates. Oh, that's right, they have, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, they put this thing together and uh, and we got to hear it and it was, yeah, it was just brilliant. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know how I ended up in them. Yes, I, I do. I went down for a gig and one of the fellows in the band got stage fright and he wouldn't go on. Uh, and as he didn't actually do anything, I went on and did nothing in his, <laughs> so it was quite easy. Yeah, but, but I could program and stuff like that, so they didn't. They, you know, it kind of made sense me joining because I, I I could do that side of things. 
Um, but it would have been, you know, the ideal place for Tony Ogden, really. I think that's, I think, you know, it was such a shame that he'd lost it a bit by then. But, you know, it would have been just the perfect setting for him, really. Yeah. And did you, I mean, you were on Deceptive Records. Was that, was that Steve Lamax label that he that's, put? Yeah. Which yeah. had various, I mean, again, and that had, um, God, it had Elastica on, didn't it? Yeah. And it suddenly... Right. So did you suddenly find yourself in that world of Britpop and and sort of having a sort of a bit of a second coming with because were you in that scene that London scene with people like My Life Story and no not really no no um, that label was kind of I suppose it was a bit like Circa in a way that you know that Massive Attack and Nana Cherry and their success paid for everything else and of course they'd had a big hit with Elastica yes. Uh, but a lot of they, their other bands were, you know, sort of anarcho-punk bands um, like Scarfo. Um, they had that, it was the band that did Eat My Goal. Oh. Um, Is it that fellow out of Radio 5? He was in it. Oh, God. The Radio 5 DJ. Rupert Everett? No, Nail Arthur Nyakid, you know. Oh God, no! He's, he's a DJ, well, not DJ. He's a presenter on Radio Five in the afternoon. Eat Michael. I think it's collapsed long. That's yes, the, that's the one. Okay. Jesus. So they had a lot of very, you know, kind of odd acts on Deceptive, and so they, they didn't really make up that kind of Britpop thing. It, it, it was I have no idea why we got that on on that. I mean, they obviously thought we'd sell, which is the reason we got on it. But, uh, and were uh, you able to sort of do this as a sort of full time, or did you have to have a side hustle at the same time? I, I didn't. I was. I wasn't working because I was in. I'd moved down to London then at the time, so I was. No, it certainly wasn't full time. I mean, wasn't a great deal of money in it, but it's, some of the band work. Jim. Jim was a photographer, and. Uh, and Nick, every now and again, would get get um, would do would drum with uh, Jesus and Mary Chain. Right, cheesy, crazy. So, how did what was that? Was it a completely different experience to your time of World of Twist? Yeah, absolutely, massively different because because it wasn't my thing. So, you know, I, I I could just kind of sit back there. It was it was kind of more enjoyable in a way because, I mean, it was the ideas were just mad and it was a bit you know kind of. It couldn't have gone on very long. I mean, the, it was exhausting because you had to get drunk every time you went on stage. <laughs> and how long did you stay? Did, <laughs> yes. And how long did you stay with the band? Did you were you on the album Your Majesty? Yeah, uh, I, I was there. You know, for both albums, right? I right. Mean, and until right until the end, really. Uh, and that kind of fizzled out in the same way with the Twisted. You know, it's just, you know, the. You know, you get dropped, the funding dries up, and then everyone suddenly decides they've got to get a job, you know. Because that last album, Tonight You're the Special One, that has got, you know, that was, it did get a lot of traction, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well that was sort of on Ireland in a way. It was on a, a subsidiary of Ireland. Yes, my God. Yeah. And then, and as we were sort of worrying about the Millennium Bug, did you get to 2000 or did it sort of putter out before then? No, I... Uh, it, 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 yeah, it probably was just about dying about then. Our heyday was about 98, I would say. Yes, yeah, and that was it. But you've had, like, you've reformed a few times with the band, haven't you? Um, well, we, we, yeah, we, Earl Brutus reformed a couple of times. We, we did a, we did this benefit for, um, Oh, who's the, the ex-mayor of London? What's his name? Not Boris Johnson. Is it Ken Livingstone? Ken Livingstone. Okay, so I think he was trying to go for... I don't know if he... He might have been the mayor of London. He was trying to get re-elected. Yes. We, we, did, we did a promotional night for that when Frank Sidebottom was on, uh, which was weird. We did, yes. we did Strange Kids. about 2004 at the Hammersmith Working Men's Club. And... Um, uh, is this where I, Frank fell off the stage? Yes, that's it. Yeah, and he nearly died. It was. Oh my god! Weird. Yeah, Jesus Christ, that's not good, <laughs> is it? Really? <laughs> that's enough. And, to and, make and, and the four people who came to his assistance were the drunkest people in the room. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, that was a weird night. But we so we got we got asked to play Reading in two thousand and ten. 
as Earl Brutus. Um, but it was really the start of the pre-new, which was, you know, the, the next band after Earl Brutus. Because Nick died, the singer, uh, well, the singer and drummer, Nick Sanderson. Yes, God. He, he, he died in 2008 and Tony, di- Tony Ogden died in 2006. Had you seen Tony's before he passed away? No, not really. He, he'd become quite a reclusive. So, you know, he, he, he just didn't go out and leave the house. And we were never we were never that close so right yeah, I, I think he I, I don't think he really wanted anything to remind him of the band or anything like that god so yes. yeah yeah it was i mean it's really quite tragic you know but um because he yes. was a, an amazingly talented individual you know since his passing has there been any connection or, or con- communication with the family to talk about the band and what he'd been up to not not really only only like sort of when we we got a we got a sort of small publishing deal you know uh and and the lp got re-released in it was 2012 so i was in touch with his family then but um, yes but he died by then so no that's not good sometimes people get in touch to just you know reminisce and talk about I don't know, try to sort of have some closure or some sort of better memories yeah, sometimes, yeah. certainly, which is... Well, I mean, that's the whole thing about the book for me, is is it's sort of given me a sort of some closure on, yes. you know, my relationship with Tony, because, um, you know, that was really at the centre of World of Twist. It's, you know, kind of why we didn't carry on, if you like. Yeah. So, so um, when so did so so the book? When did you? It's just come out. When did you? When did you start to? Or when did you plan to write it? Well, I didn't. I, I mean, I got asked to write it. I mean, I, you know, my first reaction when I was asked to do it was, you know, who would want to read this? And, <laughs> I mean, it's still the way I feel about it. But um, uh, yeah, no, I didn't have any plans to sort of write about about it and actually didn't think there was much to write about right Um, you know i I kind of uh, you know spent a couple of months with it and the thought about you know the band and you know were there any really strong anecdotes and i kind of was starting to think no you know so which is what kind of brought me to this kind of well i thought the the central thread running through it was me and tony's relationship uh and going right back to sheffield you know so i kind of thought well the kind of backstory is almost more interesting than what happened with the band, which is yes. kind of downhill path from, I mean, we, we, we got a lot of success very quickly and we got a lot of acknowledgement very quickly, but it was really a kind of downward spiral, really. Yes, but then so much critical acclaim as well. Yeah, so, so yeah, that's, that's all really nice, you know. Which is, yeah, I mean, people love the, you know, love the band. So when did you start writing, when did you actually seriously sort of, you know, go through that process of starting to write it? Um, about about 18 months ago. Right. Yeah, yeah it's been a long time. In- is this your first book you've written? Yeah, yeah, God, no, no. Well, no, actually, I did. I, I was trying to write a book on progressive rock for years, and I thought, well, I, I, I'd been writing it for about five years, and then when Nick became ill, I thought, well, I, I'll have to get it finished for you know when he dies, and then he died, and it didn't, and I thought, well, the tenth anniversary of his death, you know, I'll try and get it finished for then, and that's past. Yeah. God, that that would be a hard that would be a hard one to write, wouldn't it? Really, a hard, a hard one to write and a hard one to sell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, could you imagine if you made any mistakes, Jeezy? You know, the oh, fans yeah. would they'd be oh, on absolutely. you. The one, my just on a side thing, because I was a bit obsessed with the um, prog rock and David Bowie, and um, and I came across this artist that David really loved in the sixties, who were in the was in the first ever prog rock band, and they were from he was from. Um, Oh, Scotland. And I think they were called something like one, two, three. And, you know, he said, yeah, David used to just follow us about. And all these people who went into all these prog rock bands used to watch us. And then he had one of those gigs one night where, you know, it went wrong. He smashed everything up and never touched a musical instrument ever since. This was the late 60s. And I sort of managed to track him down and do an interview, which was was so exciting. So I, I kind of could imagine if you were doing a, a book on prog, you'd have to you'd have to find all these characters. What's his name? Oh, this is a good one, isn't it? Really, he was amazing. I mean, I have got it as a um, 
I think it's called one, two, three, one, two. I've never, I've never heard that story. It's a good one. Yeah, but David then, Mr. Bowie, he um he starts mentioning this band in the 90s, saying, Yeah, this is one of the most important bands. And everyone's going, Who the hell is he talking about? I've never heard of them. And so, you know, people start to find him. And then I sort of, you know, recently were like, I sort of came across him and I thought, with this obsession I have with Bowie, I thought, I must try and get him. And he said, Yeah, I'll do an interview with you. Um, and he told me the story. I'll have to, I'll send you the link anyway, because yeah. I have I have got it somewhere, but I can't, yeah, that's embarrassing, not even remember what the band was called. But it was just a kind of one of those things that um I think he even went to see Bowie. David sort of said, like, I'm going to be in London. This is kind of towards the end of his life. It'd be nice if, you, if you're if you a bar and everything. Because he had, a, you know, he he had, a, he's got quite a few amusing stories with David where he tells him to um, go away. So um, it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, he, he kind of gets rediscovered in the 90s when Bowie keeps mentioning this person's band and everyone's like, I've got no idea who it is, so we'll have to find it. So, um, but he's the—it's the, the the beginning of prog rock. That's the that's the claim to fame. So, um, yeah. But I'll send you a link, and I also because when you see there's only one bit of YouTube clip of this band, and you think, blimey, this is '67. You know, they are definitely prog. The yeah. early years of prog rock. Anyway, Jesus, sorry about that. Um, so yes, the book. So where was it? Because it's really amazingly written. It's a fantastic story. I mean, I mean, was it intimidating when you're thinking, right, I've got to put this down and are people going to start judging the story, judging my English? You know, what's it like? I, I think, it, you know, once I, I knew I had enough words, you know, to kind of to put down, then I, I, I suppose the only, the only worrying thing is you know what's going to happen when somebody actually reads it because I don't know when you when you write a book you kind of go through phases or or I felt that way when when you actually think you know what you're doing is really quite good and then you kind of but by the time you kind of put it out there you go the other way and you start thinking actually this is a bag of shite <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's kind of was very much where my head was at when, when he went to print so um it's, it's difficult, you know, because uh, yeah, I, th- I think we've all got writers we, you know, we really like, and you, you're kind of, yeah, well, I don't know, I, I, I kind of wanted wanted it to be a good book in a way. Yes. And um, and and then you realise, you know, next to the kind of people that you really respect, it isn't. It doesn't stand up. But, um, <laughs> but it's it's not a bad story though. I, th- I think it's. Uh, and actually, somebody wrote from a band called, it was on Twitter um, a few days ago, it was a band called Cud. Yes. Which I'm, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with, but he, he wrote this, he wrote a nice comment, just said, oh, he you know, enjoyed the book. And he said it was frighteningly similar to his experience in the music business. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that's, you know, I think anybody who sort of had that kind of band, you know, sort of got a, five album deal or something and know and got chucked off the label after putting one album out i mean it's a it's, a, it's an old story you know it's uh, a lot of people can relate to it but it's interesting because one thing i've noticed is that over the last few years there has just been a lot of kind of films being, you know, being made from quite obscure, you know, like The Wedding Presents, George Best album. You know, there's been ones on The Chills, you know, The Go-Betweens. I mean, there's there's obviously this film by Alton Lawrence from Felt that's just mm-hmm. come out. And there's been, you know, a lot of books. And I think there's this something about a, a 20, 30-year gap where you know we do something we think yeah that's fine whatever it's a bit painful as well so you want to ignore it and then you look back not necessarily with rose tinted sunglasses but you sort of look at it a bit more you know with distance and a bit more kind of just like I don't know let's just be a bit more relaxed about it and a lot of the scene from that period I think is just amazing I just you know for myself I just find myself thinking god there were so many bands and actually the stories that everyone has has been pretty incredible because the 80s, and I know you're a bit more the 80s, 90s, but, you know, the story of the 80s, it can be told by people like Dylan Jones and it's all a bit like Spandau Ballet, The Ritz, The Face, Live Aid. And it was like, that wasn't my 80s at all. It was very different. So it's nice when people have started sort of putting their kind of stories and their books and their films. And, you know, I just, you know, photographs, you know, we've seen some amazing pictures appear and now from various photographers and it's like god yeah that's that just adds so much 
that's my yeah, theory. Well, when um, Pete Selby, who you know runs Nine Eight Books, and he, he, when he approached me about doing this, and I was sort of saying, well, you know, I don't think there'd be any audience for it, and he, he the, first, the the book he suggested I read was by a fellow called Will Carruthers, who was the bass player in Spaceman Three. And he wrote a book called Playing the Bass with Three Left Hands. And um, I mean, it, I, I don't, it hasn't sold, you know, by the truckload, but it's absolutely fantastic. And it's the biggest hard luck story in rock you've ever read, you know, read, you know, sort of, you know, he, he kind of, he, he, was, he absolutely loves Spaceman 3 and he kind of, you know, so he, he, he put up with the kind of warring faction that was uh, Jason and, uh, and, sonic boom you know for kind of three years just because he loved the music so much he never made any money out of it and then they formed spiritualized and he left just as they were about to go through the roof you know so it was you know and but it's such a lovely story and I, you know it's kind of it's nothing really that uplifting in it but it's so beautifully written yes uh, and with this sort of kind of just this lovely irony that you know sort of pours over the whole thing and then after reading so when i read that i kind of thought well maybe there is something in the world of twist story you know that might appeal to people yes and i guess you know i mean did you feel because of obviously you know with, with tony passing did you feel like you you were spurred on to try and sort of do a story to do it justice for the his legacy as well as the bands definitely i I wanted to you know and i still do you know the thing is when nick died when nick sanderson died you know we we had a big gig for him for his family um for his widow and his son and um jesus and mary chain played it was at the town and country in um kentish town and british sea power played you know um, you know, we did, and, and I think Black Box Recorder were on. So, you know, it was a really big night and and, and a fitting tribute. And but for Tony, there's been nothing. Um, you know, we talked about it a lot of times. You know, sort of bands he was connected to doing something, but um, nothing's ever come together. And um, so, you know, in a very small way, that's what I was hoping this book would would be. Yes. Know? But it's just kind of beautiful, really. I mean, if you could have said something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you would have whispered in their ear to say, you know, some worldly advice? Yeah, just don't take it all too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because you're going to end up with a, or up with a proper job <laughs> eventually. So, <laughs> I know. Well, I think I think most people do think, oh, I just wish we enjoyed it a bit more rather than yeah, just... Yeah, I think so. I think that's how I wish it sort of lived for the moment because we, we did some, you know, we we didn't do loads of things, but we did, we had a lot of fun and we did some, you know, things that people would really, you know, to be proud to have done, you know. Yes, because there's a little bit that's in, in the book, which is written by Tony from The Guardian in 2005. And it's such a sad little piece, isn't it? You know, just like talking about smoking drugs and watching, you know, Third Reich films for five years. I mean, it's kind of quite a, like, oh, blimey, you're, he wasn't <laughs> in a good space, was he? You know, but it was, it was pure Tony that, I mean, you know. I mean, I, I I laughed when I read that. It wasn't kind of I didn't find that particularly sad, but uh, I, I just thought it was such a brilliant quote. It was just I could hear him saying it. You know, um, we weren't we weren't a tragic, you know, sort of outfit. You know, not at all. You know, sort of and 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 in a way, maybe if I failed, that's come up across a bit in in the book because a lot of people have said who've who've read it have said they find the last sort of three chapters sort of very sad. And so maybe, you know, I've failed us a bit there because it, it was, it wasn't a tragic thing. It would just, it couldn't have gone on any longer than it did. Yes. Because Tony Ogden was ill, you know, wasn't well enough to carry on. Uh, and I don't think we didn't do that much that was, you know, we didn't make too many mistakes really, you know, we ju- we just, it's really simple. We just didn't have an audience, you know. 
Yes, that's, that's it. Well, were you just when you look, reflect, are you relieved to have had your experience for the next decade with Earl Brutus to sort of have a completely different experience of being in the band? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, you know, when the whole when the old Brutus was going down the panic, there's you know, there was a lot of you know, I've been here before. You know, um, I mean, the, I mean, the group I'm in at the moment, Quater Mass Three, is is the best musical experience I've ever had. But it's just a shame it's come so late in my life. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, but you know it. it it's absolute joy being in this band. I think that's the thing. I think when you know when you're young, it's everything seems to matter so much. Do you know what I mean? That it, it, it's sometimes it's hard to enjoy. Yes, it's it certainly is. You just don't focus on so many things that you think that is just not important. Let's not keep focusing and let's not have a massive row on something that is completely boring because there's there's too many other important things or all sort of. I don't know. You know, there's there's kind of life, death, ailments, yeah. parents. But, I mean, it, produ- it produces great art. You know, you know, like Lou Reed obviously was wasn't the happiest bunny, was he? But <laughs> you know, for much of his career, but you know, he he made incredible music. You know, so you know, the Beatles, whatever. You know, it's it's kind of um, yes. Yeah, there needs to be a bit of trouble there needs unfortunately it does seem to sort of go hand in hand did you yeah. have a kind of I know you you sort of seem a bit sort of you know read the book you know feeling the last three chapters but did it also feel like a little bit of a a relief as well that that you've done it and uh, you know you've managed to be able to sort of process a lot of the kind of emotion and feelings and then sort of let it go yeah definitely yeah yeah I mean it was um cathartic or something I would imagine I would imagine it has been yeah, yes no, no, no absolutely yeah it was uh, you know I kind of was able to process a lot of the kind of, you know were you amazed with how much you remembered I was amazed how much everybody else had forgotten <laughs> I kind of didn't thought I, I I don't have a bad memory I mean I, I do kind of remember things quite well but um I, I do I did loads of interviews for the book and they were all fairly useless because I was expecting people to come up with you know loads of anecdotes for me <laughs> process but nobody could really remember anything I think the thing is when you when you're really focused on writing something like that you just make yourself remember yes the best thing to do and I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone is if you've been to loads of gigs you know over a sort of 30-year period try get the dates for them put all the dates down on a timeline it's really fascinating because you start because you 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 remember going to gigs and you you know how you were when you went or what you were doing or what you thought and invariably you just get everything in the wrong order so it's it's kind of it's a nice way of piecing your life back together again yeah, I know. And it's weird when you see a gig ticket, but something you can't remember, not because you might have been drunk, just you think, God, I can't actually remember. And then you have a vague remember, you know, remembrance of, did I really go and see Rick Mayo live once on his own? It was kind of, I must have done, because I got the gig ticket. And I seem to have now got a faint memory of it, but I don't know if that's a false memory, but it's like, I can remember seeing bad news, but I can't remember seeing Rick Mayo. But then it's like, I've got this ticket. It's like, I must have done. But you know, you must have had that looking through all your archives. Yeah, stuff. I mean, there was one. There was one evening in, uh, uh, sorry, one week in November, I think it was 1975, where I went to see, yes, Genesis and Pink Floyd, within seven days, and I thought, no, it's just extraordinary, you know, because now that would a cost you sort of like you know, a month's wages. Yes. <laughs> God knows that would be... You know, three amazing sort of bands, you know, just in... At their height. At their height, yeah, just... That's a lot to absorb, isn't it? Yeah. And then, and then you know, you know, the amount of times I've seen The Fall, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. But look, thank you ever so much for this, Gordon. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always um, send you the link and um, post it oh, yeah, if you please. want. Because yeah, um, it's always good to hear and to put it out there. So, um, yes, well, thanks. And um, 
I, I must admit, PDFs are fine, but you do eventually have to buy the real thing, don't you? Because it's just, it isn't quite the same as sitting right, there right. reading things, you know. But um, it's great that you're on the same label as this other guy called Nigel Tassel. Yeah, have you read it? The, the yeah, well, I've again, you know, because it's 22 bands, 22 chapters, you can just dip in and out which one you okay. find most interesting. Um, half Man, Half Biscuit was good, so um, good well, on Nigel. Yeah. People are keeping the spirit alive, aren't they? But look, thank you ever so much for this. And I will send you that thing about the first ever prog rock band yes, of all time. <laughs> Take well, care. I'll send you a link to my new band as well. So if you... Yeah, definitely. Okay, thanks ever, again, right. ever so much for this. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go, dear listener. I like to leave that little bit in at the end. It keeps it real. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Gordon King for giving me the time for that interview, talking about his life of World of Twist. But most importantly, the new book that has just come out, Available from all good bookshops and online. When does the mind bend and start? The life and times of World of Twist. This has come out on nine, eight books. Do check it out. They have got some really good books coming out at the moment. Also, yeah, this is the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. Lucky you. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.